you are. Thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you. Lord, thank you that we are part of your family, that you are alive today. This is not a fairy tale. This is real life, real eternal life. And so we know you're here with us. We pray, God, that as we open up your word, that we would open up our hearts to you as well. We pray for our Riverview riders today. Give them a wonderful time. Lord, we pray that they would be, have a safe ride today and a great time of fellowship. Lord, we love you. This is all for you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a series entitled Ordinary Superheroes of the Old Testament. Talking about ordinary people like you and me that encountered an extraordinary God and they changed the world. These were real people, not fairy tales again. Real accounts of real people, the Word of God, inspired by God, gives us an accurate account of these amazing people. We began with Adam and Eve and talked about the fall and what happened there. And, and then we covered Abel uh, and the fact that he had offered a sacrifice in faith and how it's very important that the heart of the person offering that sacrifice be right with God. More important than the sacrifice itself. And uh, we challenged ourselves to come every Sunday with a heart that was ready to worship God and lift Him up, to make sure your heart is prepared to worship the awesome God that we serve each and every day. And today I want to talk about Noah and Noah's impact on this world. A man that found grace in the eyes of the Lord in a culture that was in absolute rebellion against God. He did not cave in. He did not give in. He was a man that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That should be a challenge to all of us, by the way. That Noah, in this culture, what well, we're going to read about it in a second, that was so steeped against God. He obeyed the Lord. He was a man of faith. In fact, he's named in the Hall of Faith again in Hebrews chapter 11, that he built this ark in reverent fear of God. You know, reverence of who God is is an important thing. I love the fact that we have a familiarity with God, that we can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. But there's also this awesome respect that we have for our God, that when He commands us to do something, we obey even when it's difficult. And that's what I'm talking about today. Obedience, even when it's difficult, not just when it's easy. It's easy to obey someone when it's easy. But when it's difficult, that's what Noah did. He was given an amazingly difficult task and yet followed through and obeyed the Lord. Bottom line today is this. Noah was a hero because he obeyed God when God called him to launch a massive project to save humanity. This project would seem foolish to those around him, but actually became the means by which land life on this planet was preserved. He obeyed God. He was given a massive task that probably each one of us, when we hear this task that was given to him by God, would say, God, that's too much. Too much for me. He didn't say that. But he began the work that God had called him to, to do. I think of our church today. I think of a church that's been called to reach a world for Jesus Christ. And my prayer would be we would never say, God, that's too much. We're giving up. We're caving in. We're keeping our mouths shut. We would never say that. But we would say, God, with your help, we can accomplish this. 
We can reach a world for Jesus Christ that's groping in darkness, a world that has no hope without Christ. But we have found Christ, and we want everyone on the planet to experience the joy that we have in knowing Jesus Christ and knowing that He is our hope and that He won the victory over death. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, there should be one nearby. I'm actually going to start in Genesis chapter 6. But uh, we're going to also look into Genesis chapter 7. You go to Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 5. It gives you the condition of the world. Listen to how bad the world was. We think the world is bad now. I have people come to me and say, Mel, can you believe how bad the world is? There's such rebellion against God. Think of what Noah's day was like. Verse 5 of Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that, here's the word, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. How often? Continually. That every thought was evil continually. Can you imagine being a believer in God during that time? Noah was. And the Lord was sorry. Now, I, I think we need to stop there for a minute. When it says the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. If you read the commentaries passage. Let me see if this is doing that. Let me turn this off. This is our announcement. That is doing it. Let me see if it's my cord here. Alright, let's see what we got going on. Turn this off. There we go. How's that? All right. Every thought was evil continually that was in this world. And it says here that God was sorry that he made man on the earth. It wasn't that God said I made a mistake, but uh, most theologians, most commentators would say that there was a grieving going on by God, just like we can grieve the Holy Spirit today. God was grieved over what man was doing. It says this. So that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love the butts of the Bible. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There was one man who stood above the rest in a culture that was steeped in rebellion. I want to challenge us all today. Be people that are not intimidated by a culture that's rebellious against God to look for the opportunities that we have to share the gospel. We have amazing freedom to do that here in our culture. There's still an amazing freedom here to talk about God. We'll jump down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, most people believe that it was probably cypress wood. That was uh, the name for the wood that was used in Noah's time. There is no such thing as gopher wood today. Most believe it was cypress wood that we call cypress wood today. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. 
The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Now, we have an idea. We're, we're not absolutely certain how long a cubit is because in different cultures it was different lengths. But we have an idea of how long that was, and we will tell you in just a few minutes. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Wow. This is an amazing judgment of God against evil. An evil that existed on the earth that's beyond anything we can imagine, where every thought was evil against God. But one person on the planet found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and that was Noah. That's why he's a hero today. He was just an ordinary person like you and me, but he stood above the rest of the world and he obeyed God. That's my first point today. It's this, that, that Noah was a person that obeyed God when, the, when he was called by God to fulfill a massive task which would save land life on earth. Noah had a massive task. He had to build a huge boat in the middle of a desert. You can imagine what the local zoning board was saying, what the homeowners association was saying. Right? You can imagine what they were saying to Noah. Noah, what are you doing? And, and even though we have an idea of how long it was between the time God told Noah to build an ark and the flood actually came, it was 120 years, we don't know exactly how long it took Noah to build the ark. We believe he obviously had his family to help him. We believe he hired people to help him. He didn't do this alone. This was a massive project. But he coordinated this obedient response to God. My friends today, we have the same challenge. To obey God when it's difficult, not just when it's easy. You know, sometimes when you come to church, it's kind of easy to worship God. Sometimes when you come to church, it's easy to obey God. But when you go out into a world that's rebelling against God, it can be extremely difficult. But Noah, there's no indication in the text here that he was grumbling about this. He went to work. He did what God called him to do because he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. See, Noah obeyed even when it must have appeared to be beyond his ability to accomplish. Wait a minute, a boat 300 cubits long. God, I can't do this alone. It's beyond my ability. But again, I would believe that God was helping Noah along with his family and along with people that he hired to build this massive boat. And we also know that Noah obeyed even when he knew it would appear foolish to those in the world. They would mock him year after year. Here's the sad thing. As Noah preached the message of coming judgment and the need for repentance, how many people believed him? Zero. None. Year after year, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building a boat because God is judging the earth for its sin. You need to repent. No one believed him. He listened uh, and, and, and he preached to a world that wasn't listening. He preached to the world that did not hear. They mocked him. They know, well, where's that flood? It hasn't come yet, has it? And like Jesus said in Matthew 24, they proceeded in their lives like nothing would happen. They proceeded to live as if life would go on like this forever. There are people living like that today, by the way. 
I've said this a number of times in this church. We need to understand that life will not continue like it is today forever. It will not keep going like this. There is coming a day when Jesus will return. And that day will be awesome. And life will not continue like it is today. We have a task, church. Thank you for joining in and being part of that task. Thank you to our missions team that keeps the fire for missions around the world burning at our church. Thank you to those of you who are reaching out to neighbors and family and friends with the task that God has given us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to go into all the world and make disciples. Why? Because the stakes are eternal. We've been giving, given a massive task. We need to be obedient. We need to rise up and be the church that God has called us to be. I want to thank you for being a church like that. You don't know how much joy it gives me as a pastor to serve you and serve the Lord in a church that's keeping the priorities of God's Word at the forefront. And we do it because God has given us His amazing Word. Thank you for being a church that loves the Word of God. You can never lose these passions. You can never lose these passions. I was at a social gathering a couple weeks ago right here in the area. And at the party, I met someone who is a Ph.D. professor in marine biology. And so I was very interested in this person and just began to ask them, uh, you know, as you know, I'm very shy about things. I don't really like to speak up at all and talk about godly things. So this is a Ph.D. in marine biology, and I asked him, you know, what are the projects you're working on? He goes, oh, well, we're down at the coast, and we're uh, observing some of the marine life that move along the coast and their migration patterns along the coast. I said, oh, it's very interesting. I said, I'm a pastor of a church. Uh, I'm a creationist. I said, I'm just going to throw it out there. Are you an evolutionist or a creationist? Oh, I'm an evolutionist. I said, oh. And then I asked him this question. And I just said, you know, I've always wondered about whales. Whales are a huge problem for evolutionists, aren't they? And he goes, why do you say that? I said, well, think about it. You believe that a fish crawled out of the land became a land creature over billions of years. This land creature walked around the land and was having a great time on land, but then noticed there was some food in the ocean. And this land creature then began to walk back into the water and over billions of years turned back into a sea-living creature and a whale with a blowhole and everything. You believe a creature left the ocean and went back into the ocean? Isn't that a massive problem? I mean, it seems to me, and I said this very shyly, it, it seems to me it takes much more faith to believe that evolution caused all those massive changes uh, for the creature to leave water and come back into water than to believe that God created this whale exactly as the whale should be to survive in the water. He goes, well, well, but we don't. I said, what's the evidence for that happening? Do you have any evidence for that? And he goes, well, we just believe that's what happened. I said, yeah, I know that, but is there any evidence for that? And as our uh, conversation went on, he quickly turned it to Noah's Ark and asked me about Noah's Ark. And so, and he thought I was, uh, 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 it was unbelievable that I believed in Noah's Ark. I want you to have evidence the next time you get into a conversation about Noah's Ark with an unbeliever. I want you to have, be prepared to speak to someone. Because I thought, you know, our church needs to believe and know the facts behind Noah's Ark. Because there will come a time when people will say to you something like this, if they haven't already. 
do you actually believe in Noah's ark? And I do with all my heart. So I want to deal with some of the questions that come up with Noah's ark and this man that believed God for the impossible. This man that believed God, no matter what his culture was doing, he started to work on this project. Here's the first question. How big was the ark? And how long did it take to build? Here's a problem in the church I want to show you. And this is probably what this Ph.D. in marine biology was thinking of when he thought about the ark. If you have seen most children's books that portray the ark, they portray the ark to look something like this. Right? Have you seen those pictures? Yes, I have. I, I, they've been in my kids' books. It's no wonder our kids are doubting the Word of God. When we portray the ark to look something like this, it's no wonder they doubt the Word of God. These are just pictures from various uh, kids' illustrations. But that's not the ark that God describes in the Word of God. We just read about it, right? Three hundred cubits. Three hundred cubits. If you take the size of the ark, it's not like those kids' books' illustrations. The real ark had the same capacity as 522 railroad stock cars. This PhD in marine biology probably was thinking that I believed in a boat like those ones on the covers of kids' books. As some of you may know, we went to Kentucky this past summer, and uh, we went to see uh, a life-like, actual-size ark in Kentucky. We were there. I think I showed you this picture when we got back. That red circle on the bottom is me and my, or as my, as my wife and kids. I took the picture. That's how big the ark was. Massive. 510 feet long, 80 feet wide, 50 feet high maybe up to 120 years. We really don't know exactly how long it took Noah. But this is a massive ship, my friends. A massive boat. 510 feet. That means you could put three space shuttles end-to-end -end on the roof of that ark. That's how big the ark was. Now, how many people and animals were in the ark? Well, that's a, a good question. Eight people. Noah and his wife. Noah had three sons and their wives. Eight people were on the ark. Noah was building this ark to save his family and to save all those who would repent and trust in God, but no one did. Seven of every clean animal, two of every unclean animal. Uh, most who have evaluated the arks, and, and here's the question. Uh, God said after their own kind, you're going to take these animals into the ark. Uh, John Wood Moroppy and others have analyzed how many animals likely were in the ark to save all the kinds of animals on the ark. doesn't mean you have to take every kind of dog, right? You probably just have to take two dogs with the genetic potential to lead to the dog population we have today. Approximately 16,000 animals on the ark. Then uh, I wrote this, including known extinct kinds, there are only about 1,400 kinds Noah had to take with him. Accounting for two of every kind and seven pairs of some, he only needed a few thousand, maybe as many as 16,000. Here's a question that I've been asked many times, and you've probably wondered about it yourself. Were dinosaurs included in the ark? Now, there are differing opinions among Bible-believing Christians 
who love God and love his word. I will just share with you my opinion. I'm going to share with you mine. And again, I say this. There are Bible-believing, God-loving people that have different opinions about whether or not dinosaurs were on the ark. This is my opinion. This is from the word of God. Were there dinosaurs on the ark? Why aren't they mentioned in the Bible? Well, as you know, when we read the Bible, you don't see the word dinosaurs in the Bible. Why? Well, because the word dinosaur was invented in 1841 by a man named Richard Owen. He put together two Greek words that mean terrible lizard and came up with the word in 1841 of dinosaur. Now, we don't see the word dinosaur in the Bible, uh, but that is because that the King James Version of the Bible was written in 1611. The word dinosaur had not been invented yet. But when you look at the Old Testament, there are passages that use words that we are not familiar with. And even today, scientists and theologians wonder what those animals were. In Psalm 74, 13, it says this, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. What are those sea monsters that God broke the heads of? People wonder. Job 40 says this, Look at the behemoth. Now that's in the original Hebrew Look at the behemoth. Job, probably the first book written of all the books in the Bible. Job was the first. His tail sways like a cedar tree. People have wondered, okay, what animal could that be? People who don't believe man and dinosaurs walked together on this earth, because most scientists will say that dinosaurs became extinct about 65 million years ago. That's a long time. Why do they say that? Because they need millions and millions and millions and millions of years for evolution to have any hope of being believed. So they'll say 65 million years ago, dinosaurs became extinct. The problem is this. What is Job talking about? When he talks about an animal whose tail sways like a cedar tree. There's a picture of a cedar tree. A man standing at the bottom of that cedar tree. It's a big tree. Some people have wondered, could it be an elephant? Now, if you've seen an elephant, uh, this is a picture of an elephant. Do you notice the tail that sways like a cedar tree? See that in the back? Uh, I'm almost embarrassed to show these pictures in church. But I do this to support the Word of God. That is not a tree that's a twig, amen? That's not a cedar tree. His tail, well, could it be a rhinoceros? Some have posited well, here's a picture of a rhinoceros. Again, a tail that does not sway like a cedar tree. If those animals had looked like this, you would think, okay, now I get it. Those tails look like cedar trees. They are massive. They are big. The problem is those animals don't look like that. The only animal that fits that description in Job would be something like a brachiosaurus, a dinosaur. That existed with man. I saw this video, and I have to show it to you. It's a video uh, taken from Jurassic Park. You've seen some of you, maybe that movie. Watch this video. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made along with you. Behold his strength in his loins and the power in his stomach muscles.
His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is a prime example of God's amazing handiwork. Only his creator can threaten him. Amen. That's a big animal. Amen. Tail sways like a cedar. Now, you might ask me, well, Mel, what is some other evidence that we have? Well, if you, you can Google this yourself. There are many articles about this. Researchers, I found this one quote, working in a London museum have reportedly discovered what looks like real blood cells and collagen fibers and supposedly 75 million year old dinosaur fossils. That they've actually discovered red blood cells and collagen uh, fibers that still exist in these fossils. Now think about if I told you that uh, my dog died 50,000 years ago, you would think there's nothing left of that dog. Think about 75 million years and still red blood cells existing. I believe that man and dinosaurs walk together. Now, when you think about that, you might say, well, Mel, how did they get dinosaurs in the ark? If you were God, would you take an adult dinosaur and place an adult dinosaur in the ark? Of course not. You would take a juvenile. You would take a small dinosaur, a baby dinosaur, and put the dinosaur on the ark. Why? They eat less. They have a longer life to live. They can reproduce more. It just makes sense. You wouldn't take an old dinosaur and put an adult dinosaur on the ark. So dinosaurs were at one point, even the Brachiosaurus, very small. Very small. You can see there, uh, as they climb into the ark, that not all dinosaurs were big. In fact, the average size of a dinosaur, the average size over all the kinds, were about the size of a sheep. Brachiosaurus was huge. But the median size was about the size of a sheep. And so when you think of that, of course God wouldn't put an adult dinosaur in the ark. He would put juveniles or very young dinosaurs on the ark. The largest dinosaur eggs believed to be a little bit bigger than a football. The largest, even the Brachiosaurus, they believe the eggs of the Brachiosaurus dinosaur were a little bit larger than a football. The largest eggs ever discovered were smaller than that. And when you think about the dinosaur population, there are only about 50 dinosaur kinds in all of the dinosaur population. So there would be no problem for Noah to take even dinosaurs on the ark, a Tyrannosaurus rex, a baby Tyrannosaurus rex, two of them on the ark. I have no problem believing that. They were very small, very small animals. Why would you bring a juvenile? Well, they're smaller. The biggest dinosaur egg found is smaller than a football. Most believe that even the Brachiosaurus egg was a little larger than a football. They weigh less, they eat less, they sleep a lot more, they're tougher, and after the flood they will live longer to produce more offspring. That's why he brought small animals on the ark, young animals on the ark. Study has been done of the ark and a feasibility study of it. Here's the number of kinds that need to be taken on the ark, about 15,700 54, a feasibility study done by Jod Woodmurapi. Uh, that means, and he went on to calculate, how much of the ark would be used by these 15,000 or 16,000 kinds. 
The final number that he came up with was 46.8% of this massive ark was all that was needed to carry those various kinds on the ark. So when people say to you, the ark is a ridiculous story, it could never happen, that's not true. Scientists have looked at the ark and say it was very feasible to take not only 16,000 kinds, but even more if God decided to put more kinds on the ark. We don't know how many kinds, but at least two of every unclean kind was put on the ark. So don't believe the people that mock Noah's ark. Don't say that, oh yeah, that's, that's just a fairy tale. It's an actual account of what happened. Was the flood worldwide or a local flood? You know, Genesis 7, 18 through 20 says this. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now let me say this. There are believers that I love that love the Word of God, love God, who believe it was a localized flood. I understand that. And I'm just sharing you with my, my opinion. See, people have said to me, Mel, did the floodwaters cover like Mount Everest? My response is this. Mount Everest didn't exist before the flood. When you read about what happened, let's look in our Bibles, uh, chapter 7, verse 11. It says this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, Listen to this. It wasn't just rain. We often say it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. This is what the Bible says. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. How many of the fountains of the great deep burst forth? All. The entire world, all the fountains of the deep. There's a theory out there called the hydroplate theory that says that this was a massive bursting forth of waters from the deep under our tectonic plates that sprung up into the air would have added to the rain that Noah experienced that flooded the earth. There would have been massive tectonic shifts on our planet. And the word high here, I've read some people say the word high is not in the Hebrew. It is in the Hebrew. It's right here. I did an interlinear of this. Now, I believe the mountains weren't as high as they are today. That when the flood happened and all the fountains of the deep burst forth, all of them, massive tectonic shifts, massive crashing together of tectonic plates that ultimately led to the Himalayas and led to Mount Everest because of this massive flood. And my struggle with a localized flood is this, that water will find its level. Where does that flood that covered the highest mountains of the day, where does it stop? Water finds its level. If there's not a point where water says, I'm not going any further. So I struggle with that. But I know there are believers that have studied this and believe differently, and they have a great rationale for it. But I wanted to share with you, I do believe it was a universal flood. And as a result of that, what would you find? You would find billions of dead things. Let me just give you this buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. If there was a universal flood, that's what you expect to find. Billions of dead things that were killed almost instantaneously by this flood. Buried in rock layers. That's what leads to fossils. Like when I had a fish tank when I was a kid, right? If a fish died, what happens to the fish when they die? They float to the top, right? Well, that's not what... what causes fossils. When something floats to the top, it's eaten by other fish, and it's, it, it decays in the water. What we find is fully formed fossils that were 
covered in rock layers. That's how fossils form. But there was some sort of catastrophic event. And what do scientists find in the world? They find billions of dead things that are buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. You find fossils of fish in the middle of Pennsylvania that should have only existed in the ocean. All, all around the continental U.S., you find fossils of water-living creatures that somehow are found in the middle of the continental United States. Well, that supports what I believe was a universal flood. What were the results of the flood? You know, Noah and his family were in the ark for about how long? Anybody know? About a year, a little over a year. What happens? Well, this is what most scientists who believe in the flood will say. There was a breakup of the unified landmass during the flood, catastrophic plate tectonics. Mountain ranges formed as plates collide. People and animals were given permission after the flood to eat meat. Introduction, introduction of the hydrological cycle. Possibly no rain prior to the flood. Why do they believe that? Because the rainbow wasn't seen until after the flood. We all know that rainbows appear when it rains. So the hydrological cycle that we experience today was probably the result of the flood. There was an ice age that was caused by excessive heat in the oceans and a barren landmass around the world. Drastic climate changes that lead to extinction of the dinosaurs and other animals, which is what we see today. Hundreds of species in the plant and animal kingdom go extinct every week. What, what we're seeing today, they go extinct. Chinese scientists say Darwin's tree ought to be flipped over. It's not beginning small and branching out into all the life forms we see today. What they're saying is they look at all the geological layers that we started out with, all this diversity that's slowly dying off over years, which is exactly what we observe today. And that these fountains that burst forth, uh, known as the hydroplate theory, is what caused the massive tectonic shifting and crashing and mountains of being formed like the Himalayas. And what used to be, and you can kind of see it on your map, can't you? I, I know if you look at a globe, you think, well, it's amazing how South America can kind of fit into Africa. And they look like they were at one point joined together, all these continents. Most scientists believe that occurred. And that after the flood and during the flood, those plates began to shift apart. Is there any other archaeological evidence today for the existence of the ark? There are. There are scientists who believe that, and there are a number of sites, if you go on the internet, on Google, you can research this yourself. There are a number of scientists who believe that evidence has been found for an ark. Now, I have come to the conclusion that more work needs to be done. Nothing conclusive can be said yet as to, yes, we have absolutely, without a doubt, found remains of the ark. But here's just one article. Expert claim new evidence. This is, this is from this past December. Experts claim there's new evidence that Noah's Ark is buried in Turkish mountains. And they gave a couple pictures of these land formations that look like a massive boat. This is probably one of the most interesting ones because that formation you see there is about 500 feet long. And yet scientists want to go in and do more work. See, I want us to be a church that believes the Word of God that believes what the Bible says, not to be ashamed, even with a PhD in marine biology who wanted to mock the story of Noah. I use this example, and with this example I'm going to close. I said to him this. I said, if I were standing in the Garden of Eden and I watched God create and make Adam, 
And I saw God do this amazing miracle. And you walked in one minute after Adam was created. And I turned to you and I said, see that man over there? Yeah, I see him. This is what I said to this PhD in marine biology. I would turn to you and say, I just watched him being created. He is one minute old. I said, you would look at me and you would say, Mel, you're an idiot. That man standing there, there's no way that man is one minute old. He is at least 20 years old. Look at him. He's a full-grown human being. Mel, you're an idiot. How could you ever believe that? I said, here's the difference. You don't allow for a God to be an answer in any scientific query. You would try to prove that Adam is 20 years old when I had just watched him be created by an awesome God one minute ago. Because our God is a God of miracles. Our God is not, as so I told him, our God is not limited by human understanding or human power. Our God is far greater than that. See, I get it, I said to him. You, you don't believe in God. So nothing is miraculous in this world. I believe in a God that created. And I know you would walk into the Garden of Eden and call me a fool for believing that Adam is one minute old. But I would know it's true because we serve an awesome God. And Noah believed that. And he did what seemed impossible, but he walked a walk of faith. And I want to challenge all of us today to be like Noah, to walk the walk of faith, not to be ashamed of our God, not to be ashamed of his word, not to be ashamed of his salvation plan that is for everyone, but to hold our heads high and know that we believe in a God who loved us all the way to the cross and gave his life for us. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you. And Lord, we don't doubt you. You are an awesome God. And man wants to explain everything as a naturalistic process. They don't allow you as an answer for any question in their query. And Lord, I'm thankful for the good scientists that are doing very good work. I'm thankful for scientists over the years who've given us a greater understanding of your creation. But I pray, God, I pray that there would be a revival even among the scientific community when they see your handiwork and they're willing to take the step and have the courage to give you the praise and honor for what you've made. I pray that would be true of us as well, Lord. That we would give you the praise and honor for all that you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing this song. So remember your people. Remember your children.